was that? Did uh, so that, did you go out and do that? No, no, oh. we didn't. Uh, we 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 had dinner at home, but uh, once he he's the type of guy that once he thinks of one joke, he repeats it for oh, yes. everyone to hear it. Uh, so I probably heard that four or five times just in the course of a day. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds like a lot like my style. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, I got I got at least a chuckle out of this. I need to see if I can get more, but that that chuckle was enough. I need to I need to get this as much lifespan as it can. These days, it's a lot. You know, you can diversify a lot better because you can tweet it, and I can say it like on the radio, and I can do it in like an Instagram live, and you know, yeah. and you can tell people IRL, you know. <laughs> And those those audiences may never intersect, you know. Yeah, you you may get like one or two people that will see the same thing. You're like, uh, he did that joke on Twitter earlier this morning. Yeah. Whenever I see your tweets at like five thirty in the morning, I'm like, oh, someone thought of something funny when he was looking at show prep this morning. Yeah, yeah. And, and most of the time, most of the time, they're hits. I gotta say, very very rarely with your five thirty or six a.m. tweets do you miss. Well, thank you. I, I I think my tweets are criminally underrated. I, I wonder. I look at it all the time, and I'm like, why don't I have more followers? I am hilarious. Like, especially when I go through time hop, and I'm like, that deserved a million retweets. That deserved a million retweets. Like these jokes are funny and original, and uh, yeah, not not to blow my own horn, but I guess I will. But yeah, it's it's funny when they don't realize they're saying it like this, but when you when I, I'll say, I won't say you, when one, when one reuses a joke, I'll speak like the Queen of England, when one reuses a joke, <laughs> and then someone else goes, oh yeah, I saw you tweeted that, like, oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't mean that, they don't mean it in a mean, it's like when you're telling them, oh hey, we, um, we, we went home for, you know, we went home for the weekend. It's like, oh yeah, I saw you, I uh, saw you post about that on Facebook or whatever. It's like it's not to be mean. It's just I don't know what it is. It's just to it, to move the conversation forward. But you still go like, ah, oh, yeah. dang it, I'm you know. It, it's um uh not not the in the same vein, but uh, I was listening to this episode of a podcast recently, and they're they're talking about this one topic, and I'm scrolling on Reddit later in the day. And it's on the Today I Learned subreddit talking about the exact same uh, thing. Ah. And the article is like, Today I Learned in 19 bloopity doop, uh, uh-huh. 17 or something, the S curve of a toilet was patented to keep this from happening. And I'm like, okay, surely somebody had to bring this up in the comments. And I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling. And I find the one parent comment. Thankfully, it has like 200 some upvotes. Uh. So there's uh, definitely a lot of people who are thinking this. The person's like, hello, yes, I also listened to 99% Invisible. <laughs> yeah, I see that all it, the it was, time. Yeah. It was just the same topic they were talking about, and this person posted it in a completely unrelated subreddit to get karma, and they got 30-something thousand upvotes. Yeah, I mean, that's like such a small, that's an even smaller Venn diagram than people I know in the neighborhood and people who read my tweets you know it's like i i i i, I subscribe to today i learned and i don't listen to 99 percent invisible so i would have i don't think i would have upvoted that because it doesn't sound i'm not I'm, i don't upvote i don't know the toilet thing i'd have to see it yeah. <laughs> to know what they're talking about well, but, yeah. well i think today i learned is a subreddit that you're automatically subscribed to whenever you create a reddit account right yeah i know they, <laughs> I, yeah there's there's so many that i'm still subscribed to that 
that were there whenever I created my account. <laughs> yeah, I I know they um I know they shuffle those around a lot, and there was um there was a theory about that some of some of the automatically subscribed subreddits were so divisive or controversial or uninteresting or whatever that that was the way they got people to make accounts just so they didn't have to see those uh, you know uh, as a guest. <laughs> you know, like po- wow. like politics was one, atheism was one that like you were that like non accounts automatically saw or something like that. I don't remember the exact, but you know, it was like the, people would make accounts just to stop subscribe, just to stop seeing posts from those <laughs> subreddits. It was a theory. I don't know. It sounds sounds pretty good. It's sound. Uh, should we get going? Yeah, might as well. All right. Welcome to No Hugging, No Learning. It's a show about one thing: watching Seinfeld for the first time. And today we will be talking about season eight, episode fourteen, "The Van Buren Boys." But before that, uh, oh, I have, wait. You well, uh, you you skipped over oh, your name. Oh my gosh, Jeez. you're right. I- I'm so flustered. Uh, I'm Tim Murphy. <sighs> And I'm Ted Hollowell. God. And today we will be talking about <laughs> season eight, episode fourteen, the Van Buren Boys. I panicked because I didn't write down the season and the episode number, so I had to flip back through my notes oh. to find the previous one and add uh, one, which I did in my head. And obviously, it used Good. way too much CPU power, so I forgot to say the thing. <laughs> you sound like my old laptop. Wow. <laughs> I, I I have to go back to my old notes. Uh, Thirteen plus one. Uh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Exactly, and forget immediately what you're doing. Uh, forget how to talk. That's, th- this is all RAM I have yeah. currently available. All I can do is add. Uh, but so, and the other thing that, that flustered me is um, before we usually start with what's the deal with stuff from our last episode. But I forgot some stuff about the money last week. I didn't do the Ooh, trivia okay. and tidbits about the money. So this goes back two episodes ago, but it's really interesting. If it wasn't really interesting, I would have just skipped it. But Jack, uh, the, the guy who plays Jack Klompas, Sandy Barron, he didn't arrive on time to the studio for filming, and he was found collapsed in his car in the parking lot by the production coordinator, who immediately what? got medical assistance. Yeah. And the Seinfeld writing staff started rewriting the script to put another character in Jack Klompas' role, but uh, Sandy Barron recovered a few days later. This, I don't know if it's true, because it would be way too on the nose IMDb says he was in a coma. And I'm like, no, he was not. What? He was not in a coma no. right after the no. coma episode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. Yeah, That's I agree. someone who also hosts a Seinfeld podcast being a little cheeky. Yeah, yeah. Like going into IMDb <laughs> and going, oh, yeah, no, yeah. He, was in a, he was in a coma, he of was, course. Yeah, <laughs> he was in a coma. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> And oh, but so and then he insisted on doing the part. He was like, no, I'm okay, I can do it. So they did the table read on December 15th, 1996. They filmed, started filming immediately after and finished up December 17th. Due to Barron's health issues and Jerry Stiller's scheduling conflicts, the scenes with Jack Columbus weren't filmed until January 6th and 7th. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. So like, very, uh, very time crunchy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They were like, we got to we gotta get this going. Um, and by the way, I, I guess I was mistaken. So the money was the episode before the coma episode. But still, it, it's really, it's really mm, too, okay. it's really too sus- suspicious. It's sus, <laughs> as the kids say. Sandy Barron, by the way, died in 2001 at age 64 of emphysema. So uh, that voice that you hear him use is not an act. That is years oh. and years of smoking. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even this most recent episode. I think it was the last one that he was on. We we made a remark about it. it was like, is he okay? Yeah. Is he is he going to be alive for much longer? Because I, I think it was uh, he came up to Jerry and he's like, "Hello, 
Jerry. Jerry. Like he, Jerry. I got my pen, Jerry. <laughs> he doesn't sound good. Yeah. I'm worried for him. So yeah, he was he was four years away from from the big one. Damn. Yeah. And from, from the big sleep. From the big yeah. And from the yeah, the coma you don't wake up from. Yeah. And according to so um, just a couple more things. According to Sarah Silverman, Michael Richards screamed at her because she kept blowing her line. It was probably the wind. Remember when he's like, what? he's talking about his doorknob shaking really? and she goes, it was probably the win. And I guess she kept uh-huh. blowing it and, you know, Michael Richards exploded on her. I would love to hear the full story about this because it sounds, you know, for what we know about Michael Richards, it sounds on brand. But I would also hate this story because I like to look at that, you know, for instance, that stand up comedy incident as uh, an isolated incident, you know, that he didn't do that all the time. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that incident. Um yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel I want to know like what she was flubbing, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it was probably the wind. What was she saying instead of that? Yeah, she, or, she or might may, have just stumbled maybe, on it, or yeah, yeah. It, maybe she was just like going right into the next line, and that that she just uh, maybe didn't learn that line whenever she was like running through the script, and just anytime she ran through it, she just skipped over that line. Maybe yeah. Yeah, or stumbled, or fumbled her words, or delivered you know the wrong emphasis. Whatever the case may be, you know it, it got she got a talking to from Michael Richards, a stern talking to. Oh God. Yeah, <laughs> and the money was the most watched episode of season eight with thirty seven point three million viewers. Whoa! Yeah, I know those numbers are just insane. I mean, nothing even gets half that these days. Crazy. No, I mean you're. You're what? Half of that would be what? Seven, like seventeen, seventeen million, nineteen, eighteen. Yeah, like like seventeen, eighteen yeah. million people. That's a lot of people. Yeah. The Academy Awards doesn't even get that anymore. <laughs> no, I don't even think NFL gets that anymore. I mean, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember thinking it was impressive when American Idol was still getting like twenty million viewers, but. 37.3 that's just incredible and that's why shows that were getting like 10 million viewers like freaks and geeks what we were talking about that's why they were like mm, no sorry not good enough like oh man yeah oh my god uh so that's all the stuff from the money now what's the deal with stuff from our actual last episode the comeback first uh i was talking about all of the vhs cassette covers that i saw in champagne video and one of them was angel fury starring either Cynthia Rothrock or three people whose last names are Cynthia, Roth, and Rock, because Roth and Rock are on two separate lines, and it just is a weird way to write someone's name. But uh, Angel, it's actually Angel of Fury. I guess I couldn't see the of on the box. It came out in 1992, and it does star Cynthia Rothrock. What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That must be her on the cover, too. She plays right. <laughs> She plays security specialist Nancy Bolin, and she's hired to deliver a valuable computer. And she's joined by her former lover, who has plans of his own for the computer. Ooh. Yeah, it's actually a uh, a Hong Kong production called Triple Cross that was edited and redubbed with new voices and released as Angel of Fury uh, in '93 by Imperial Video in the USA to capitalize on Cynthia Rothrock's rising popularity as. I guess as much popular rising popularity as a B movie action star can have because she was born in Delaware, raised in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and became one of the few Western performers to achieve genuine stardom in the Hong Kong film industry. Huh? Yeah. So she was just this, you know, this white chick from Scranton, PA who went and actually, 
you know, became a big martial arts star in Hong Kong, which I imagine is very difficult for anybody to do. And she was credited as Fu Lok Law or Fu Lok Law, spelled a a different way. Um, Oh, either (laughs) F-U or F-O-O in many Hong Kong movies. And producer Pierre David initiated Rothrock's move to the American market, offered her a co-starring role with Chad McQueen, who I didn't look, but he must be like the deadbeat son of Steve McQueen. (laughs) I'm only guessing. (laughs) Who's like, you know, I want to be in movies. You know who my dad is? Like, fine, I'm I'm making oh, this. God. <laughs> yeah. to total Chad behavior. Yeah, total Chad. Um, and so they were in this movie called Martial Law. That was her first U.S. production. And then for the next 10 years, she led a successful career in B-grade action movies. She's still alive. Get this. She was the inspiration for the video game character Sonya in Mortal Kombat. No yeah. way. That's really cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. And she lent her voice to the animated series Eek the Cat, which I think has come up before, but that was one of my favorite Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, <laughs> it was very much in the same vein as Ren and Stimpy, like that kind of, you know, just absurd, weird animation style, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it it sounds like she uh, definitely has, and even if she was still acting, I don't know if she still is, uh, probably will continue to have more success in the Chinese market than John Cena. <laughs> that was a crazy story. Oh, good lord! Holy hell! <laughs> and everyone, like everyone, is dragging him too. Like, oh, <laughs> John, why, why? <laughs> yeah, just weird. I mean, yeah, just uh, it's if any video is made under <laughs> duress, like, did, was he blinking an SOS message or anything like that? I we need to. I we need to know. know. I don't know. yeah it does suck how much film stars have to suck up to china these days you know because you know there's a billion people in that market we also wanted to know is tennis anyone an actual reference to anything specific Uh, jerry says it to what we find out is milos's wife and and i'd heard it before it's just like kind of a cliche line about tennis if there could be a tennis catchphrase tennis anyone is it well Tennis Anyone has its own Wikipedia page. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, It's an English language idiom, primarily of the 20th century, and it's used to invoke a stereotype of shallow, leisured, upper-class toffs, and it's a stereotypical entrance (laughs) or exit line given to a young man of this class in a superficial drawing room comedy. Uh, A close (laughs) paraphrase of the saying is in the 1914, again, drawing room comedy, misalliance in which Johnny Tarleton, uh, this is a George Bernard Shaw play, says, anyone on for a game of tennis? And an 1891 story in the satirical magazine Punch put a similarly (laughs) notion, a similar notion in the mouth of another same type of character saying, I'm going to see if there's anyone on the tennis court and get a game if I can. (laughs) (laughs) Ta-ta! This is like the meme where the further you go into human evolution, the shorter the phrase gets. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a cave drawing with like a circle with a stick coming out and then a ball and some sort of primitive question mark uh, indication. Uh, Anyone for tennis is particularly associated with Humphrey Bogart. This I did not see coming, but... At the start of Humphrey Bogart's career, who, you know, was like Mr. Tough Guy, like, uh, what's his line? You know, all of those lines from from Casablanca. This is the start of a a beautiful friendship or whatever, you know. But (laughs) at the beginning of his career, when he was younger, he was in a bunch of Broadway plays, like in the 20s and 30s again. And people say that he did speak the line. And if it ever did happen, it would have happened in the 1925 play Hell's Bells. Bogart claimed his line in the play was, it's 40 love outside. Anyone care to watch? 
And that's what's printed in the script. But according to, I guess, someone else in the play, there's a lot of great names in this section, like old actors. Like, according to Darwin Porter, director John Hayden crossed out the line and replaced it with tennis anyone before opening night. And a lot of people have asserted that he did say it. Erskine Johnson, in a 1948 interview, says Bogart, uh, you know, said, um, I used to play juveniles on Broadway and came bouncing into drawing rooms with a tennis racket under my arm and the line, tennis anybody? And it was a stage trick to get some of the characters off the set so the plot could continue. But Bogart's usual stance was denial that he ever said that phrase. He said, the lines I had were corny enough, but I swear to you, never once did I say tennis anyone. Uh, So it's um, up for debate as to whether Humphrey Bogart can uh, take credit for it becoming, you know, uh, drifting through popular culture in the the 20th century and to a diminished extent in the 21st. So there's more info that you uh, you ever needed about tennis anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea. So that's all of the homework that we had. Just some trivia and tidbits from the comeback. Uh, regular Seinfeld actor Andy, A- or director Andy Ackerman was on vacation. So I don't know if you noticed, but the comeback was directed by David Owen Trainer. I didn't notice this. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, wait, wh- where's Andy Ackerman? And now I have the info. He was, you know, man's got to take a break. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think we, did we point out any interesting, you know what? I did like the shot of Kramer, the slow-mo shot of Kramer getting nailed in the face with the tennis balls and it would hit his head. And then his head would hit the back of the wall, and it had that like really cool recoil shot. Um, so I did like that. I got to say, I was just trying to think of any other shots that sometimes we point um, out a shot and we're like, oh, that wasn't Andy Ackerman. Not uh, not the same scene as that, but in the same vein, uh, the shot of oh, who was it sitting at the tennis court? Was it Jerry and Elaine? And then we see Milos in the back. But we, I, I thought it was Kramer just with how much he was like flailing around and they weren't addressing yeah. him at all. I like yeah. that shot a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How that, that, it's rare that, that's, that stuff that moves the plot forward is going on in the background. Uh, yeah, so good job, David Owen Trainer. Uh, the relationship, I, I, I find this hard to believe. And I think it just comes from a like a, an Onion AV Club review of the episode. But the relationship between Elaine and Vincent is supposedly a reference to the Phantom of the Opera, which was in its ninth year on Broadway at the time. I didn't. I love Phantom of the Opera, and I didn't notice that. Do you have a reference point for Phantom? I mean, I've seen the original 1929 movie. Yeah. I, I've seen the 1946 movie. Uh, haven't seen any of the... The ones from the last like forty years. I know there were a few of them. Yeah. Um, never saw it on Broadway. I-, I want to see it on Broadway if it's still open. Whenever you know Broadway comes back. Yeah. But... So you did see the the Gerard Butler no, musical? I or no, I, you haven't. Oh, okay. No, I haven't. No. I gotcha. I-, I don't know. Maybe I get the parallels. I just don't see it as a direct reference, like the Phantom leaving stuff for Christine, and then I don't know. Just it just doesn't progress in the same way as Phantom. I just um I see it more as like just a random secret admirer kind of thing but maybe maybe it is maybe i'm just maybe i haven't seen phantom in a long time i don't know the tennis match was set at an indoor court as we saw the sudden tennis club but the crew were unable to book an indoor court in time to use it as a filming location so they got a crane and draped a tent over an outdoor tennis court and made it look like an indoor court and there was (laughs) i guess there was huge heavy rain in los angeles that week because of el nino and rain collected on the tent putting the cast and crew in danger of having hundreds of pounds of water dumped on them if the tent were to collapse (laughs) 
and uh, or seeped in underneath, creating electrical hazards. After filming of the master shots wrapped, by which time the crane's back wheels were lifting off the ground from the weight of the water, uh, the cast and crew cleared out, and the remaining footage was filmed back at the studio on a makeshift half-court set. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. That's insane. I mean, once the crane wheels start going up, why didn't somebody, a lawyer, somebody come in and go, we're not going to murder the cast of the biggest show on television and all these crew members. And like, and, you know, the studio is not going to pay out on Jerry Seinfeld's life insurance. So <laughs> that's insane to me that they that they were like, oh, no, this is fine. This is fine. Let's keep let's keep rolling. Back to one, everybody. Uh, the role of Vincent was played by Danny Strong and voiced by Robbie Benson, since the writers obviously wanted Vincent to sound older than he was. Uh, Danny Strong went on to a very uh, lucrative and, and prolific career. He played Jonathan Levinson in the Buffy the Vampire show, which, you know, is a huge cult classic. Oh. He was Doyle McMaster in Gilmore Girls, another uh, cult classic show. He wrote the screenplays for Recount, which was the HBO adaptation of Game Change, which is about McCain and Sarah Palin and their run for the White House back then. And he wrote Lee Daniels' The Butler, and he wrote The Hunger Games' uh, two-part finale, Mockingjay. And he's also a co-creator, executive producer, and writer for the Fox series Empire. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> it's kind of crazy that the guy that played Vincent <laughs> probably did have a very extensive knowledge of film and went on to be a screenwriter, like write all these huge blockbusters that's, and these giant shows. <laughs> yeah, That's incredible. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Andy had... I don't even know if it's him yelling my acne. I guess so. You know, because it wasn't his voice. I was thinking about like he had one line. And I was like, oh, no, he delivers a lot of lines. But no, that's not his voice. So he gets one line in Seinfeld and it's my acne. Yeah, that, that's that's probably his voice. I'm guessing the other actor is uh, whenever Elaine's talking to him on the phone, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So they got this other guy to voice. And I recognized the name Robbie Benson. And I'm like, why do I know that? So, of course, I looked him up, too. He's an actor, singer, composer, filmmaker, teacher. He rose to prominence as a teen idol in the late 70s, appearing in the sports films One on One and Ice Castles, which I kind of remember. I don't remember what it was about, but I know it involved ice skating. But, you know, just a, just a, a big, uh, mushy, romantic movie. And yeah. then he garnered more fame because he's the voice of the Beast in Beauty and the Beast from 91. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that movie had already been out for like six years, and they were like, who should we get? Oh, let's get the guy who voiced the Beast in Beauty of the Beast to voice Vincent. <laughs> Yeah. I, I'm surprised that uh, I I don't know if she was like walking around whenever I was watching the episode. I'm surprised that Grace didn't say like, "Is that the Beast?" I didn't recognize it. You know, Beauty and the Beast is one of those movies that's on repeat in my house, and I, I didn't even recognize his voice. So yeah, he must he he definitely wasn't going full Beast. That would have been crazy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> That'd be incredible. Yeah, it would have been amazing. He also uh, has directed a bunch of television, including six episodes of Friends, which uh, the, the the reunion episode is uh, a lot of people are talking about, including getting a lot of hatred from the Seinfeld circles because there's always that, uh, you know. The, the fucking circle jerk of <laughs> Friends bad, Seinfeld, Seinfeld great. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I like I liked the Friends reunion special. We, I we watched it. I wish I could see it. I, yeah, I've only I, seen whatever's been leaked online. I we watched it. I, I thought it was I thought it was really good. And they did um they did a lot to kind of combat the narrative that it's six white friends in uh. New York. It's inherently racist, which I, I'll say probably not the 
best look. But when you think about it, not every friend group is going to have just one person of color just to have a token person of color in there. Um, you're going to have some friend groups that all look alike. You're going to have some friend groups that all look uh, totally different. This just happens to be a friend group that uh, everyone is beautiful and looks alike. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but in the reunion special, they got a lot of interviews from fans all across the globe, including like three or four people from Ghana. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Like, Grace and I are both watching this. She's like, I had no idea there was such a huge Ghanaian friends thing. (laughs) It was kind of cool to see, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, for sure, I guess representation is a problem on the show that uh, only came to light once representation became a thing, you know, on TV. Literally, like, like, as the show was ending, I I think it was, like, in, what, 04, 05 or something? Right. Uh, Right around that time is whenever people started, like, Hey, yeah, we um we should probably not cast all white people in these things. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, yeah, I really wanted to check it. Just the trailer, uh, you know, got me a little choked up. So I was like, oh, that looks that looks good. And then just listening to all the clips and and seeing yeah. stuff. I I will give you if you do watch it. I will give you the trigger warning. Uh, there's uh too much James Corden in uh. there. <laughs> I have heard. And people, that's one thing that I saw people going like, wh- even Friends fans were like, why does it have to why, be James Corden? Why James Corden? Yeah. yeah. We were watching this as like, I would take Jimmy Fallon over James Corden. Uh, I-, I think Conan would have been the best because Conan was like uh, late night. Uh, he was hosting, uh, I think, late, late night at the time. Or maybe he was yeah, hosting sure. the late show. But no, at, must, at the I'm time, sure it was late night with Conan O'Brien. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, from... Yeah, like 94 to 2004. Yeah. yeah, I think he was still hosting Late Night. Um, but it would be like Conan or Letterman or Jay Leno. And like out of those people, Conan for sure. You yeah, and it makes... You don't want David Letterman talking to the cast of Friends right now. No, not after his Aniston interview went. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it makes total sense because James Corden, as far as I would know, his show is probably on Paramount Plus because that's CBS's deal. And yeah. Conan's new show is going to be on HBO Max. I know. that. That's what I was also <laughs> thinking. I'm like, yeah. it makes too much sense to do Conan. Why are you I'm not doing some Conan? synergy. And yeah. Conan O'Brien is great friends with Lisa Kudrow. They came uh. up together. They were like in, in acting classes like back in the early 90s. <laughs> like when he it, first moved to LA. You know, I, I will just play devil's advocate here. Maybe Conan wasn't available. Yeah, scheduling <laughs> conflict. They've been trying to get this thing off the ground forever. They probably just obviously, you know, they, they couldn't reschedule it again because of uh, Matthew Perry's emergency tooth surgery, too. Oh, my it's like, God. No, we're, yeah. we're not pushing it for anything. I don't care if you've got <laughs> blunt force trauma. I don't care if you come in here and you've got a gunshot wound. We're recording this thing today. Well, there's uh, one thing we know for sure in, in that listening to Conan O'Brien's podcast, if he was the first choice, he will definitely say that he was the first choice. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to hear about it. So there's some there's some news about the Friends reunion. But I, I do have just a couple more things. We got a cameo alert from the last episode. Writers Greg Cavett and Andy Robin were both big childhood fans of the 1992 I'm sorry, the 1972 medical drama action adventure show Emergency. And they asked casting to try to get Robert Fuller, who played Dr. Kelly Brackett on the show, to voice the doctor 
in the movie within the TV episode, The Other Side of Darkness. So Fuller agreed, and Andy Robbins' wife, Anna, who was also a big fan of Emergency, I guess, played opposite him as the voice of the patient. Another voice cameo, first Robbie Benson, and now Robert Fuller from the 1972 wow. medical drama <laughs> show, Emergency. Jesus. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Uh, and a deleted scene alert. This makes so much sense because one of the things I thought was out of place was Kramer driving very slowly to his doctor's office. And I was like, I mean, I get it, but it's just one joke. So we didn't really need it. Well, Kramer's trip to uh, not the doctor's office, the uh, the lawyer's office to find his lawyer was originally much longer. So he was navigating across a wet floor to get to the elevator, trying not to slip, you know, like being extra safe in a lot of different scenarios, but they didn't have room for all of those. All they had room for was him driving very slowly, and so that's what made it in. And it was almost uh, like not explained that he's going, you know, slowly. It, you know, it's not laid out like that's why. Like we we figured it out yeah. as audience members, but I felt like it could have been, you know, nailed home a little bit better. And more scenes showing him being more careful would have done that. But had to get rid of him, uh, and that's it. All right, uh, do we got any news or anything? Not that I saw. All right, um, I don't. I, I mean, we, we kind of covered every, everything that we were talking about uh, that is topical in, in homework. But all right, if you've never listened to this show before, we are not a research-heavy show, despite the last 32 minutes of this uh, being solely research. Oh, but, you know, we had a shorty. We had a shorty last week. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we got into, like, episode discussion at, like, 11 minutes. Um, I, I feel like this was this was due. Uh, I've never seen these episodes before. Tim has never seen these episodes before in chronological order after being a lifelong fan for years. If we miss anything, if we egregiously skip over something, please send us an email or send us a tweet. It's at nohugging on Twitter or nohugging, no learning show at gmail.com. Both of those links are in the description or on the show description page on Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, and we will send you a no-hugging, no-learning holographic sticker free of charge. We just need your mailing address so that we can send that to you. Um, or if you just want to send us a, an encouraging email uh, or a job offer to me, uh, uh. please let me know. I am going crazy inside my house. That being said, Season 8, Episode 14, <laughs> The Van Buren Boys, uh, original air date, February 5th, 1997. Uh, I was four years, one month, and 16 days old. And if you are counting this episode and every other episode we've got left, Tim, we have 31 episodes until we become a, I don't know. Emergency? <laughs> oh my god. 1972 medical action drama. Emergency podcast. <laughs> How how long did emergency run for? I don't know. <laughs> Do, is it a long enough run that we can have weekly episodes for like a year? Let's see. American. Wow. I it, I didn't even have to put in the exclamation point. It ran for um. It ran for five years, seventy two oh, to okay. seventy seven. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. We're doing an emergency podcast after oh, this. Listen to this other star, Randolph Mantooth. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. Wow. I know. That, uh, for, I, not even related, but for some reason, a name that ridiculous made me think of uh, the real name of Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Yeah, what's that? Uh, his name is Richard Blood. What? Yes. Ugh, when someone, you know, like him goes into what he does and then you already had a cool name. I, I know. Tim, <laughs> his, his name is Dick Blood. 
dick blood. Oh my gosh. I didn't even shorten even just Richard blood is great, but now I don't know what to think. <laughs> Emergency ran for 122 episodes and six TV movies. I'm excited Whoa. about watching a show that has TV movies. I mean, we've kind of done that a few times with Seinfeld. Yeah, we have. The, yeah. the, the, the 40-minute episodes that definitely should have just been 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, or we, I we thought you were... To, we need to fit, like, these two extra minutes of content. Well, we might as well make it a double-length episode. I thought you were putting stuff like Jingle All the Way into the Seinfeld universe. Because oh. we've talked about movies like that before. <laughs> or A Christmas Story 2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, if you're looking at TV Guide the night of February 5th, 1997, you are going to see Georgia interviews student candidates for Susan's scholarship. Not bad. We'll see if we can make it better at the end. But at first, I thought it was too short, but we'll we'll see. Our cold open, we start with Jerry and George hailing a cab. And Jerry uh, just asking one of those random questions that you ask your friends that you start thinking about. Who was the last president to have a beard? And George says, Nixon. And Jerry's like, no, I mean like a really thick beard. And George says, Artemis M. Faultmore. <laughs> and Jerry thinks for a second. He goes like, you made that up, didn't you? And he's like, yeah, but it sounds like a president, doesn't it? And then they start talking about why the presidency attracts the badly named. And George says it's typical male overcompensation. Uh, and then Jerry notices, are you wearing lifts in those shoes? Uh, which George runs off. We open at a restaurant, Da Silvano. And this was at 260 6th Avenue. It is permanently closed, but it has its own Wikipedia page. Huh. Yeah, it's not very long. Uh, it basically just says it's a West Village restaurant known for its celebrity clientele and gregarious owner, and it was open from 1975 to 2016, uh, closed in 2016. It is now Avena Osteria, so still Italian food if you're at, uh, you know, on the Upper West, or in the West Village, I mean, looking for Italian food. It's still there. Jerry is there with Christine Taylor. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. Uh, weren't we just talking about dodgeball last week? Yeah, we were. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, uh, Mrs. Ben Stiller, but also, you know, a star in her own right, probably even around this time. We'll have to, you know, I'm going to we're gonna have to do a little dive on Christine Taylor and figure out whether this was a cameo or not. I'm going to say it was. I'm, I'm going to say she was probably in the Brady Bunch movie already by this point. She was in the Brady Bunch movie? Yeah, yeah. She played. Wow. Um, Marsha, I get, or whatever, whoever the popular one is. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Marsha, not Jan. And that's kind of, I mean, she was so spot on for, I feel like, looking like that actress that I, I always associate her with actually being on the Brady Bunch. And I'm like, no, no, wait a second. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah. Um, and they're on a first date, and it happens to be on her birthday as <laughs> waiters start singing a birthday song to another table, causing uh, an awkward moment for, for Jerry. But also, it's it's kind of puzzling. And so up in the apartment, uh, a little bit later, Jerry and George are trying to figure out why she had a first date on her birthday and wasn't going out with friends or anything like that. I like that George is like, maybe she wanted to celebrate the Monday after the weekend, which doesn't make any sense. It does get a funny line from Jerry. He goes, she's not Lincoln. <laughs> I thought that was good, yeah. <laughs> but why wouldn't, if anything, if your birthday was on that Monday, you'd celebrate either that previous weekend. You you, you save your birthday for the weekend, not the work week, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, uh, if you if you have a, a job with like a good boss and you don't have friends, maybe you look forward to the Monday that your birthday's on because you're going to get like a cake or something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe <laughs> or, you have only work friends. Yeah, or, or a birthday shout out in the company newsletter. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're looking forward to. By the way, did you like Jerry's XXL terry cloth button-up shirt? Oh, my God. <laughs> like, also, like, rusty purple colored, whatever it was. <laughs> and it's, like, it's so big. He's got, like, I don't know whether the top button or just the top two button, but so much of his undershirt is showing because the, the shoulders are, like, falling off of his shoulders. It is open so wide. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Even for Jerry, this is this is a bad fashion choice. And also, like, terry cloth shirts, you know? Like, I don't know about that. Uh, Kramer comes in and he wants some pizza, but George can't go with him because he has to go to an interview uh, or he's interviewing for the foundation scholarship students uh, for the foundation. And uh, it's pretty funny when he tries to leave and Jerry's like, you know, once again, like needling him about it as he always does <laughs> yeah. when the foundation comes up. He's like, does it ever bother you? He's like, no, he's he like knows what's coming. He's trying to leave. And, and Jerry won't stop talking about how the, the sole purpose of George is giving away money that would have been his if, if Susan had yeah. been alive. <laughs> I, I think he even says like that they're, they're beating the bushes and just giving this money to anyone that is not you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And George goes, nope, I'm fine with it. <laughs> I'm fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> so over at the foundation, George is interviewing all these overachievers that only make him feel more inadequate as a person. Uh, so George is completely unimpressed until he meets Stephen, who looks like Jason Alexander senior year. I mean, it's like uncanny oh, the actor they got. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I. It's almost like they actually cast someone in Jason Alexander's family. Yeah, yeah. The, and they're wearing the exact same glasses, too. That really helps, but it looked like the exact same brand of glasses. And George takes an interest in him because he lies about who his favorite chess player is. And so, and it had George going, and he wants to be an architect, which, as we know, George has always wanted to pretend to be an architect. Not only did he lie about the the chess player he pulled a george too and like <laughs> mumbled the name and like wiped his nose and mouth while saying it <laughs> i well, i think i wrote it like oh yeah like uh nastrakov <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like that's perfect that is spot on george yeah because george does the exact same thing back to him and then the kid's like oh man i i'm going to i blew it i'm not i'm not going to get this and he's like whoa 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 <laughs> Like, hang on, you had me going there. Again, just like George, ready to throw everything away at the first <laughs> sign of something being a problem. That is true, yeah. The first little roadblock, like, well, I quit. <laughs> the, the, the first little speed bump is actually a brick wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, back up in the apartment, Superman is on the shelf. This is where I noticed. It was probably there earlier, but I didn't notice it. Uh, and Elaine is has an opportunity to ghostwrite Jay Peterman's autobiography. Uh, I, I thought Jerry's line got an appropriate reaction from Elaine, but like, oh, when it comes out, I'll have to get somebody to ghost read it for me. <laughs> that was good. I, I really yeah. like that. <laughs> e Elaine's reaction to it, too. She just gives Jerry the... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, very funny. Uh, yeah. Which is, yeah, it, that's the appropriate reaction. I'm glad they didn't treat it like a real joke because it's a dad yeah. joke, you know? <laughs> and Kramer comes in and he had a run-in with the Van Buren boys at the pizza place that he went to. And he got out by inadvertently, you know, by accident, flashing eight fingers, which is their sign because Van Buren was the eighth president. 
What did you think of uh, Michael Richards' physical acting here? Oh, it's, and, it's pretty good. And really hamming it up. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I thought, like, th- for some reason, I'm thinking, like, he's really phoning this one in. Um, <laughs> like, really, really hoping that the audience reaction carries this one. But also, I, I was stuck on the thought of, like, what kind of pizza place gives you the slice, then you have to top it yourself, <laughs> and, and then do, do they throw it back in the oven? Are, are the toppings cold? Do, do you put ch- more cheese on it to melt it? I could not get my brain off of this. It sounds like, well, first of all, it sounds like Kramer's idea for a pizza place where you make your own pizza, you know? Kind of, yeah. But, I mean, he uh, he didn't say anything about, like, tossing his own dough or, or ladling his own sauce on. Right. I think what I landed on was, because I thought it was weird, too, and he said, I think the word toppings bar was misappropriated here. Yeah. I think, I don't know what I would call it, but I think he just took his slice over to where you see the oregano and the Parmesan and the chili flakes and he mentions garlic. Sometimes they have that garlic shaker, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not like he's adding, like, banana peppers or anything to it. Just, like, the seasonings and... And the the drizzles or something. Yeah, maybe maybe seasoning bar would have been a better. I don't know what you, I don't know what you call that place in a, in a pizza place. That little uh, you know where you can go do that. But that's what I pictured. But but when you say toppings in a pizza place, you think pizza toppings. So you, I thought you think the exact toppings. same thing. Yeah. yeah. So I, I thought the exact same thing. And I got to admit, um, the the one part of his physical comedy that faltered for me was the the whole crook eye stink eye thing. That really did feel phoned in because there was there was no <laughs> think- difference in that. Yeah, yeah that, that that's what did it for me. I'm like, oh boy, I'm kind of seeing through the cracks of <laughs> of Michael Richards now. <laughs> yeah, if anything, that was probably just lazy writing, and they were like, you know, Michael Richards does funny thing is what was in the script, and it was like, all right, now you do our work for us. It's like, what? No, I'm it's, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm the <laughs> actors. Like, no, you, you just do just do your thing. Get out there, monkey. So, are you, t- are you telling us how to write? That's <laughs> yeah. our job. Well, then please do your job. <laughs> write something for me. Don't tell us how to do our job. <laughs> uh, out on the street, which is, by the way, near... This is the same set as Kramer's... The, the coffee shop where Kramer gets free coffee for life. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. my God. I didn't even catch yeah. that. It's one of the places he runs out of when he's like, you know... Uh, yell- he has his contract in his hand. I don't remember uh, exactly. But uh, Jerry is there with... Now we know Christine Taylor's name, Ellen. And they run into some of Ellen's friends while Ellen is on the phone uh, checking her... Uh, answering machine messages and they tell jerry it is he is so sweet to take her out you have no idea how much she needs this uh but she's not coming off a bad breakup like no no uh and but they they don't elaborate on like why she needs this or or why or 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 why jerry is so sweet you know yeah he asked her that yeah he asked her that and they're like nope and walk away nope uh (laughs) as he puts it in the next scene like some act of charity that he's going out with her like what what uh, and she doesn't have any messages, by the way, so nobody called. And in Monks, Jerry and George are trying to figure out what's going on, and George is like, uh, easy, she's the loser of the group. Every friend group has a, someone they make fun of all the time, like us with Elaine. And Jerry's... <laughs> oh, my God. This <laughs> Jerry's was, reaction. Yeah. This was so good. No words. Nothing. He j- Just Jerry just, like, kind of shaking his head, <laughs> and then eventually just his hand, like, up to his temple, just, like, almost... Sh- forcibly shakes the thought away and moves on <laughs> yeah it's like do, do i want to get into this right now or <laughs> nah not worth it no nah, now it's not just let it slide just let it slide <laughs> uh 
And George tells Jerry about Stephen Corin. We even get a last name for this character. And I like, you know, Jerry's asking him about Stephen. And, you know, Jerry's noticing that he's, you know, kind of completely average. Like, I, I forget what he asked. Like, is he a good student? And he's like, he knows how to read. <laughs> <laughs> and I think George said uh, back to Jerry, uh, he knows that there's no achievement in reading a full book. Which yeah. It is a shitty thing to do and to, like, teach a kid. But I got to say, George is kind of spot on here. As long as, like, you know the general gist of, like, what happened and you know enough about the book to reiterate information about the book when people ask you about it, yeah. you're in the clear. Yeah, and it's it's not an achievement in and of itself just finishing it. You know, like, oh, you finished a book. Wow. Yeah. You know? I mean, you can say, oh, yeah, I read this book. And you don't have to clarify, I read a third of it. You say, <laughs> I read it. <laughs> yeah. It's not some huge, you know, but but it is, <laughs> but George is saying it because he doesn't do it, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. oh, that doesn't make me less of a person or any less smart just because I can't finish a book. <laughs> uh, over at Jay Peterman's, Elaine is, this is actually Jay Peterman's modest, mostly unfurnished apartment. It's not Jay Peterman's yeah. office. <laughs> This looked like uh, kind of walking into a pottery barn, but like scaled back. If pottery barn was a pop-up, this would be it. Yeah. Or, or like somebody's first apartment where like the only yeah. furniture they have is like what their parents gave them, you know, in the U-Haul or whatever. And like, you know, don't, you, you'll fill the rest of it out. Like it's got, she's luckily there, there was a place for her to sit because it's got like a small couch and a, a table and a bookshelf with almost, it's, it's not as exotic or interesting as his office for sure. It, it's definitely the type of apartment that a person who has one plate, one fork, one knife, yes. and one spoon would live in. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and Jay Peterman's just chilling in, like, sweats and a t-shirt, too. He's not wearing, you know, his interesting vest or his, you know, linen pants or anything like that. He's, like, <laughs> just completely bumming it. He really does not take the job <laughs> home with him, does he? No. And he doesn't want you know it to be about the stuff that he puts in the catalog all the interesting travel and the romances and stuff like that he wants it to be his autobiography more about his day-to-day -day, uh <laughs> which is, at this point is noticing that the cable channel numbers have changed and having to memorize them all over again <laughs> yeah and this is where elaine tells him the Kramer's story about the Van Buren boys oh because he brings up Lorenzo's and she was like oh man my friend got in a, a fight with the Van Buren boys there and he flashed their secret sign and got out of it because you know and and Jay, Jay Peterman wants that story he tells Elaine to buy Kramer's Van Buren boys story and put it in his autobiography uh, over at Monk's Jerry is eating with Ellen and just really examining her for flaws, like trying to point out any, like, was that the same outfit you wore yesterday? Are you using the fork that fell on the floor? You know, like just seeing, and, and he's got, I like that. She's like, no, the waitress brought out another one. And I like Jerry going, I guess that's okay. And she's just so <laughs> level headed the whole time. Like, even when he's talking about the fork, he's starting to make a scene. He's like, are yeah. you using the same fork that fell on the floor? <laughs> like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> I guess that's okay. Um, and he, he's he. There's nothing about her that she's perfect. Uh, and as they're getting up to leave, George and Kramer are coming in, and he introduces Ellen to them. And Kramer has the biggest reaction. He looks downright shocked. <laughs> 
Over at the foundation, George introduces Stephen to the board. Uh, his GPA is a solid 2.0. <laughs> it, it says, like, right in the meaty part of the curve where he's not overachieving, but he's not failing. <laughs> By the way, I say I never knew where I got it, but I say I always throw in the word bell. I throw in meaty part of the I say meaty part of the bell curve all oh the time. Right God. in that meaty part of the bell curve. <laughs> I never knew where I got it before, but that phrase I love so much. I say it anytime anything is completely average, I'm like, yeah, right in that meaty part of the bell curve. Uh, and I guess I must have got it from here. It's such a gross, visceral descriptor. <laughs> Yeah. Like there's nothing even inherently like bad about it, but the the meaty part of the curve just has a reaction for me. I'm like, right, ugh. The meaty part of the curve. I, I didn't know. So I mean, talk about like Seinfeld quotes that are not really Seinfeld quotes. That's one that has entered my lexicon that I I, I never knew I got from here, but there it is. <laughs> Uh, and Steven says, you know, and George is like, and he has the highest of aspirations. He wants to be an architect. But then Steven all of a sudden is like, well, no, I thought, why why, why make just one building when I can design a whole city? I want to be a city planner. And it's at that point, everyone starts shit-talking uh, architects. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, uh, it's Wick who's like, you know, the dumbest guy in my fraternity became an architect after he failed out of dental school. Which, this is all upsetting George because it's a, like, roar of... Uh, of laughter from the board. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Wick shakes Steven's hand and George, oh my God, George is so sad. Yeah, yeah. It, George is just fuming. Uh, which he, it's funny because he's not even an architect. They're just like, no. <laughs> like shitting on a dream of his that will never come true. You know, it's not like they're saying, oh, you know who sucks? Travel secretaries for Major League Baseball teams. They're the losers of the universe. Like that would probably make him less upset than all of this shit talking about architects. <laughs> They could personally attack his own mother, and it would be less of an offense to him. Yeah, well, for George, that's not much of a you know not much of a stretch. But no, no. For anybody else, imagine yourself in that situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Up in Jay Peterman's office, Kramer is recounting the Van Buren brothers' story and selling it to Jay Peterman and Elaine. And then Jay Peterman makes him an offer for all of his stories and for fifteen. Well, actually. Kramer asks for $1,500, and Jay Peterman offers half of that, which Kramer accepts. He, he excitedly <laughs> accepts. Yeah. He excitedly accepts $750. Yeah, for his what? life story, I guess. Which I'm sure is not even enough to pay rent for his apartment for one month. <laughs> Can't be. Yeah. And uh, as a bonus for Elaine, Jay Peterman says, consider Elaine at your disposal for, you know, getting all these stories down on paper. I What I thought was weird, I don't think he says at your disposal. He says, oh. consider Elaine your disposal. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I didn't even notice that he dropped the at. I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, so back in Jay Peterman's apartment, still in Jay Peterman's apartment, Kramer is telling Elaine about a story about returning a pair of pants and walking through a subway tunnel, and then he fell in some mud, ruining the pants that he was going to return, and that confuses Elaine even more. She's like, <laughs> well, you were you were wearing the pants you were going to return? What were you going to walk home in? And Kramer's <laughs> like, Elaine, are you listening? I didn't even make it. <laughs> Which doesn't negate the question, but... <laughs> It reminds that exchange reminds me of it's like well what were you gonna walk home in he's like Elaine I never even made it uh, it reminds me of how old would Aunt Baby be today if she had, if she was still alive it's like she, she never would have made it she never would have made it I'm like no but like 
you can add two numbers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you still should have been thinking about this. What pants were you going to wear home? Uh, <laughs> and he invites Elaine to a party that he's throwing for his recent financial windfall. Again, $750 uh, to document some of the stories that he'll tell uh, there, or I guess what happens and stuff like that. Uh, up in Jerry's apartment, George is going to deny Stephen the scholarship over the loftier goals that he has um, because he feels betrayed. And he, I, this was so George talking about, um, I, I can. He was like a son to me, and if there's anybody that should be able to hold you down, it's your own family or something like that. Oh my God! Yeah, like just like my father did to me, and like his father <laughs> did to him before him or something. Yeah. And uh, Jerry is spending the weekend with Ellen in Vermont. And George, when he hears Jerry on the phone with Ellen talking about this B&B that they're going to be standing, he runs and goes to get Kramer. And Kramer and George, George takes the phone off the hook. They have a loser intervention with Jerry. And George, they both think that Ellen is a big loser. And George is like, what is it? Why are you doing this? Is it your career? Things are going to pick up. And then they start talking about the Bloomingdale's executive training program again. I thought we liked the Bloomingdale's program for him we're not going to talk about that right now <laughs> it's like but all his problems interconnect with each other <laughs> yeah um and and jerry like he still thinks that ellen is perfect he doesn't know what's going on this was great too it's like that twilight zone episode where some guy wakes up and everyone's different and he's the same and kramer's like which one he's like oh they were all like that <laughs> <laughs> which is true <laughs> it's very true <laughs> uh, and uh, that's why i always loved the scary door parodies on Futurama. Those are some of my favorite uh, bits. The scary door. Out on the street, Stephen confronts George with the Van Buren boys as the leader of the gang tells him he became so disillusioned he had to join us. And they threaten George over getting the scholarship back. <laughs> and the Van Buren boys do look, some of them look kind of doughy, but the, the gang leader definitely looks like a, a, a tough guy. Yeah, I, I think he's got like the dangly earring too. I'm yeah, like, oh yeah. my god, how how currently trendy. <laughs> it's weird though that like why you know I, I guess it's just absurd and we're not supposed to question it, which is kind of on brand for season eight. You know, post Larry David, it gets a little uh, a little absurd. That's that's one adjective that always gets ascribed to it. But why the Van Buren boys? You know. <laughs> Who came up with this? Why? I, I kind of liked it, actually. I, I thought it was so ridiculous that it would never exist. I'm like, <laughs> okay, yep, I buy it. It is. It, it totally is. But that's why I that's why I have so much trouble with it, I guess. <laughs> it's a little out of place. You know, it's um, it's absurd That's or ridiculous, like you said. Over at P&G Cafe, which I loved this exterior shot. Like, it's of this corner bar, the P&G Cafe, this gaudy neon sign. But then just down oh, the street... Man. You can see uh, like two or three more bars that have just great exteriors. It was a great shot. I, I had to go back and look at this because just from the glance, I thought this was monks that they blacked out all the neon of oh. Tom's restaurant and like digitally added other neon over it because it is the same exact shot of how they get monks a few times just of a different restaurant exterior entirely. Yeah, this was this was a really cool shot, and that sign I, I learned is is kind of iconic. Uh, so this P and G Cafe, this was at the corner of West Seventy Third and Amsterdam, so right in Jerry and, and Kramer's neighborhood, and it was there from nineteen forty five to two thousand nine. And in two thousand nine, it moved to Columbus near West Seventy Seventh, and that location closed in twenty eleven. Uh, this location of P and G Cafe is now Blue Bottle Coffee. 
Uh, and and a lot, I, I couldn't find any of those cool exteriors. Like even the one next to PNG Cafe has like this maroon and gold column sort of old oh, pub man. look. Yeah, it looked really cool. And and it seems like this build, this whole building has just been kind of uh, wiped clean of all that. But that 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 gaudy neon sign was kind of famous because I mean, you just look at it and you're like. Does, Man, that's that's really. Does Blue Bottle Coffee still have the P and G Cafe sign up? Because that'd be kind of cool, just for for like uh, architectural history. No, I don't know what happened to the sign because even when they moved in two thousand nine, so you know, uh, eight years or whatever after, uh, uh, okay, uh, or so, or w- wait, I did the math wrong. Um, Twelve years after this episode, um, or yeah, uh, <laughs> CPU frozen uh, again. <laughs> Uh, so even even they moved in 2009, they didn't take the sign to Columbus and West 77th, um, and then they closed in 2011. So I don't know what happened to the uh, the iconic P&G Cafe sign, but yeah, it was like, what, like red and green and blue and yeah, just like gigantic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it would have been cool, but no, Blue Bottle Coffee has almost, I don't think it has any exterior signage. I think I saw a little, um, you know, caution wet floor style, what are they called? Sandwich Ooh. board style thing. Yeah. Just sitting on the sidewalk, like. This Boring. is Blue Bottle Coffee. Yeah. Wow. Upper West Side ain't the same, man. Not like it was back in the 90s. <laughs> I remember when New York was cool and gritty and dirty, <laughs> and there were sex shops on every corner. <laughs> uh, and but Kramer's having his party at P&G Cafe, and he starts telling the story about the pants because one guy – I love that everyone thinks this is an amazing story. That's – that's an absurd <laughs> bit of this episode that I love that they're like, hey, by the way, they say I they say Ramirez, but I was like, is that supposed to be Ramirez? And they call yeah. it Ramirez? Ramirez. <laughs> hey, Ramirez. Shit. <laughs> hey, Kramer, Ramirez hasn't heard your pants story. <laughs> like, you guys know that's not how that's pronounced, right? <laughs> 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 De- definitely a- makes me think of like how uh, a southern american would try to say uh, a hispanic name like ramirez though yeah ramirez yeah. who's kramer's other friend that they say that way the one that the one that is surprisingly jewish i ah, remember um dang it i can't oh, i God. can't remember his name now but yeah it's, it's another like butchered hispanic name i feel like if I remember, I'll have to go, I'll have to look that up later. But yeah, Ramirez hasn't uh, heard the pants story yet, so Kramer starts telling it. But then Elaine reminds him that that's not your that didn't happen to you anymore. That happened to Jay Peterman, uh, and so Kramer has to amend the story, saying, "Well, you know what? Uh, the the pants actually fit really well, and I decided to keep them." And when he when the people hear that story, which is so much worse than the other story, they decide the party's over and everybody's going home. <laughs> like that, all of them at once. That's their cue to leave. Yeah, uh, boo. That, that story sucked. So at that point, George runs in asking for Kramer's help with the Van Buren boys. And Kramer knows now that he you know, can't recount the story because it didn't happen to him. Um, and so he, all he can tell George is that they never hassle their own kind. And I love, like, as he's looking over his shoulder, he's like, I certainly don't have any stories. (laughs) Yeah. And Elaine is, like, just loading up the shots. Like, she's downing shots at the bar for some reason. (laughs) I guess she didn't know the party wasn't over yet. Or the party was over, because she was probably doing that to get through it. But, yeah, she's just downing shots. Up in Jerry's apartment, Elaine is lamenting that all of Kramer's stories are unusable. And Jerry's like, well, you're a writer. Just make them interesting. Uh, And Elaine is surprised at the prospect she's like yeah 
you, you know the metaphor of like the the light bulb turning on whenever someone has a great idea. Jerry literally turns Elaine's light bulb on for her. <laughs> yeah, and and she's uh, I like the way she's taking it, and she's like, people like interesting writing. And Jerry at that point goes like, he has like this funny like slow burn. <laughs> turnaround of like oh man like like he overclocked her cpu with that light bulb you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's like okay um and jerry is flying his parents in to meet ellen because he can't see anything that's wrong with her everyone thinks she's a loser uh and elaine's like oh cool maybe we can go to dinner he's like nah i'm gonna get him to fly back tonight <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing uh it is only a two-hour flight as we learn but still you know let him stay the night uh, Kramer comes in to tell a this Bunyan story. You got to hear my story, my Bunyan story. I was loading oh. lunch meats on the couch next to me, and they fall into my foot bath. And <laughs> Jerry and Elaine are like, "Yeah, that was disgusting." Oh. Like Kramer, we don't want to hear this. And he's like, "Ah, so it's one of several Bunyan stories that he bought from <laughs> Newman for eight dollars." Who has? A, a bunch of Bunyan stories. N- Newman, I, apparently. Yeah. Newman, I can totally see that happening. <laughs> but I could honestly see Kramer already having a bunch of Bunyan stories. But yeah. I love that also immediately when, when Kramer found out that buying stories is a marketplace, immediately like that enters the universe of Kramer and Newman. Like, oh, uh, I'll buy your stories. You buy my stories, you know. It's like... <laughs> By the way, I feel like this is, um, you could... You could make this kind of an, an allegory about NFTs as well. Oh, my God. <laughs> I see buying people's stories the same as the NFT marketplace. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you're you're not wrong. Like, bu- <laughs> hey, I, I want to buy your viral tweet from 2009. Okay, cool. Is uh, 0.75 Ethereum good? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's worthless one week later. Yeah. Yeah, is it, no one is talking about NFTs anymore. That's already dead. Is it? Because I still feel like it's it's just bubbling under. You know, like the normies like us don't look at it anymore. But I still feel like I see tweets all the time from people selling <sighs> NFTs or stories about. It's, I, it's certainly I mean, not as big as it was. I'll agree with that. As someone who uh, follows Gary V. Uh, yeah. who who currently has meme crypto and who has bought into meme stock this year uh nfts are done i yeah. think uh, I maybe like may, maybe i'm wrong if if we if we get an nft connoisseur on the show and they yeah. can prove me wrong and tell me why uh buying an nft would just the digital receipt that says you own someone's tweet or own this specific piece of digital artwork is a great investment. Please <laughs> change my mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is super dumb. I agree. I don't understand it, but I feel like it was just, maybe this was the end of it. Maybe it was, but I feel like a couple weeks ago that Charlie bit my finger. No, David, a dentist. One of those two. Jesus was, They sold the original. Ugh. And it's not even like, here's the original, you know, thumb drive that the video itself, like, no, it's, it's, it's it's not even that. I don't no, know. I can't it, even explain it's, it. It's, it's so a dumb. receipt that says you own that video. That's what yeah. you pay your money for. And yet you you don't because I can find that video literally anywhere in the world. Any JPEG uh-huh. that you want to sell, any tweet, like that's what I don't uh-huh. understand. Uh, the the real dumb ones are like the the trading card ones, like the um top shots. Yeah, I'm like that's <laughs> so stupid. Like if you're buying those, you just have way too much money. Like put it away. 
You know, it's it's not an investment for sure. Like I never even saw it that way as something you could resell. I saw it as people like just collecting, you know? If I find a good GIF I want to like save to my phone, I download it. I don't yeah. spend $4,000 on it. Yeah, it's super easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then I, I use it how I please. Uh, and it's, and yeah. you know what? May, maybe we're out of touch. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It, what's what, the, the Principal Skinner meme. It, is it... Is Are NFTs N- stupid? <laughs> is it the NFT traders who are wrong? No. <laughs> no. Or no, wait. I'm getting it backwards. God damn it. Uh, yeah, wait. Are... Is, is it is it us that are out of touch? No, it's the NFT traders yeah. that are stupid. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. But it, but but the but buying people's stories, the market that marketplace is just as dumb. But if anything, like it's even a better investment because Kramer can't go around telling those stories anymore. So it's not it's 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 even it's an even better investment than NFTs because Jay Peterman has prevented like that's that story. Maybe it is. <laughs> that story is truly non-fungible because Kramer can't go around telling it anymore. Only one person can tell it, you know? It's not like Kramer can go download the same story again or whatever, you know? <laughs> it, it's not like he's going to run out and say, you know, I used to have this one story, but it's currently owned by Jay Peterman. And to hear it, you have to read his book. Yeah, it's it's even dumber than, uh, or it's less dumb than an NFT thing because NFTs are not one of a kind, despite that being the literal definition of NFT, um, and you know? But this story is, and it's, it's actually being enforced. You know what I mean? Um, and now Kramer owns all of Newman's Bunyan stories. <laughs> uh, up in Jay Peterman's office, Jay Peterman hates Elaine's harrowing tales of adventure like Kramer. So she writes the version where Kramer is in the subway tunnel and and starts, you know, has to dive into a side tunnel to be avoid hitting a train. And she's like, <laughs> she tells him the real story and he loves the actual version of the story. Where, you know, and, and Kramer calls up because he wants all of his stories back. Oh, he calls Peterson. Hey, Peterson, which I love, Kramer <laughs> butchering his name, um, to get his stories back. And Jay, Jay Peterman does sell, give him his stories back because he thinks Elaine can write even better stories. But in fact, it was the original Kramer story. So uh, Elaine has to go off to write that real version of that story. And he tells him, you know, he tells her, when you get to the romantic escapades, feel free to toss yourself into the mix. <laughs> yeah, oh <I> my god <laughs> yeah yeah weird uh, inappropriate inappropriate boss out on the street uh, the van buren boys confront george once again and he tells him that he was a former member and they're like all right we'll do the secret sign and he does some random hand gesture <laughs> I, I think it like ends with him like flicking his nose <laughs> yeah and uh the, the leader uh is like that's not the sign and george is like it was when i was banging i loved his use of the word banging so great <laughs> so great because i feel like gang banging th- using is, that to describe it th- is anyone so 90s. actually does anyone actually say that other than like tucker carlson <laughs> yeah 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 people who are still like using it for fear are the ones but it was like that was the nomenclature i mean gang banging oh he's a gang banger yeah but um i think even even that crowd has replaced it with thug you know <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was when I was, but I, I just love it coming out of George's mouth. It's so funny. Uh, and they tell him, "All right, well now you, to prove yourself, you got to mug the next passerby." Uh, so out in Monks, over in Monks, I mean, Jerry is there with his parents and Ellen, and she's finishing up a story about getting her master's degree at the Sorbonne in Paris. And she excuses herself to go feed Jerry's meter for him. And Jerry's parents absolutely love Ellen, but now that Jerry's parents love her so much, 
He's not so sure about Ellen. Oh my god, she's she's literally perfect. We never do find out what is actually wrong with her, and, and I'm assuming we don't see her again. Uh, I, I doubt she's going to be in any future episodes where we we actually find a flaw. Yeah, I definitely don't remember. Um, and Jerry starts remembering this other girl, Amber, that that his mom brought up. Oh, she's much better than that girl, Amber. And he was like, Oh yeah, Amber. I wonder what she's doing. I wonder if she's back from Vegas. <laughs> uh, out on the street. Uh, George has obviously stalled for some passersby and hasn't mugged them. And they're like, all right, the next one's it. No more stalling. And the next one, people who come by just happen to be the Seinfelds. And George thinks he's in luck. And so, you know, uh, he he asks he asks for their wallet. He's like, give me their wallet. Give me your wallet. I'll give it back to you. I promise. I just need it right now. And they think he's acting really weird, which he is. Uh, George even tries to grab Helen's purse at some point, and they walk off. Uh, and even yell, say hello to your parents for us. <laughs> as as Morty is waving, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then George books it with the Van Buren boys in pursuit. And that is the end of the episode. I don't know if you caught this during this scene here. Uh, did you see who the story editor for this episode was? No. A uh, guy by the name of Steve Corin. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow i wonder if he's like the usual story editor i don't know i That's have no amazing. idea it only only jumped out to me this week <laughs> yeah yeah that's incredible steve corin uh all right what do we got for homework this week uh i wrote just i wrote down christine taylor just a little dive on on christine taylor to find out whether this was a cameo or or just a good gig just uh, just where she's at in her career uh, yeah. in this point. Yeah, it's interesting. Another person from the Stillerverse because we had Bob Odenkirk a little bit earlier. So, uh, And, of course, Jerry Stiller is on the show. So I wonder if he was just, like, helping his son get his friends gigs on yeah. Seinfeld. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if she was uh, in the Stillerverse at this point. Because I don't think they got married until 2000. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they may have been together already i mean it's early 97 so it's not out of the realm of possibility yeah i wonder if they knew each other at this point that'll be that'll be interesting to find out um all right what do you like for cover art this week ah man hmm maybe it is called it's called the van buren boys so maybe kramer recounting his story up against the wall with the uh eight fingers up is, is kind of a good shot you might even be able to get jerry and elaine in that maybe everybody laughing at george at the foundation that might be a, a good shot. There's probably a nice shot of that. Uh, I, I liked uh, yeah. I liked the wide shot of Stephen and all the Van Buren boys accosting George on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a really good overhead wide shot where there's like <laughs> Stephen and four Van Buren boys in front of him and two of them behind him. Yeah, that's good too. I like all of it. All right, let's see what we can come up with for the episode description. So we had George interviews student candidates for Susan's scholarship. Hmm. I mean, that does happen, <laughs> but it's not really indicative of, of of this episode. I feel like you know. I mean, what do we got? We got Jerry and, and Ellen. We got Elaine Kramer and Jay Peterman. And then we got George and the Foundation. So I know we can't put all of that in, but I think you know. So George interviews students for a scholarship. I just feel like we... Do you think we can make it better? Um, the thing that was th- jumping out at me is George finds his ideal candidate 
to receive Susan's scholarship because it mm-hmm. is his ideal candidate. It's mm-hmm. not the best candidate for any traditional scholarship by by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it wouldn't. I was. It would probably just give too much away about like George is in trouble when he. Yeah, that's even too. I was gonna say George. George gets in trouble when he revokes a scholarship or something like that. Yeah, but that gives away no. a lot of the a lot of the plot. So George finds. What did you say? George finds his ideal scholarship candidate or something like that. George yeah, finds it. Some something like that. George finds his ideal candidate to receive Susan's scholarship. Oh yeah, I, I like that. I mean, it's longer, definitely. I I wouldn't mind putting. I would love to. How about how about? Oh, man, I was I, I was. It's almost too circular, but I was like. Trying to think of something like Kramer, you know, okay, that gives probably too much away at the end, but like Kramer can't help when George, <laughs> I would, I'd just love to include something about the autobiography and all of Kramer's dumb yeah. stories, you know, and selling them to Jay Peterman. Maybe what about like, what about Kramer, Kramer out and, of stories or what about Kramer and Elaine collaborate on, see now, now it's just so long now that we got the, now that we got, all right, we'll just settle on George, um, but what, uh, does it give away too much of a plot to say like George feels betrayed by his by the candidate chosen for Susan scholarship or something like that? It may because he doesn't feel betrayed until Stephen is meeting yeah. with the board. He loves right. the kid until then. Yeah, I think I we guess just I- got to keep it either as is or like slightly change it like we did at first. I feel like slightly changing it because the interview process is so, you know, so quick. It's like, you know, yeah. a minute of screen time and it's more about him finding the perfect guy. So I, I like that. Let's let's just keep it like that. I, I don't right. think we can George- make it any better without making it novel yeah. length. <laughs> so, so George interviews his ideal candidate to receive Susan's scholarship. How about George believes he's found the ideal candidate for Susan's hmm. scholarship? Okay, yeah, I like that. Or his ideal candidate for believes he's found his ideal candidate for Susan's scholarship. Yeah, yeah, All right. that wor- that works because that indicates like, oh, he only believes that he's found the. Well, what happens then? Okay, that's enough of a tease. I just like there to be a little bit of a tease, you know, rather yeah. than just like a statement of fact. Like George interviews candidates for blah blah blah. It's like, well, that does happen, but it's not. You know, we want people to watch. You yeah, know? yeah. Thirty-seven million's not enough. I want everybody <laughs> watching. <laughs> did you remember this episode did you have any, any um, like memory of it going in yeah i feel like it's one of those that people remember only because it's only because of the van buren boys is such a crazy concept and so that's very memorable and i remember the eight fingers and i remember the uh jay peterman's reaction is often when elaine is telling him and you know what if he you know you sat in a mud puddle and you ruin the pants and he's like <laughs> the very pants i was going to return (laughs) so that's a memorable line but i didn't really like this episode and i feel like because it's not resolved there's so much when we got to the end that's like all right well Mm -hmm. what what did happen with ellen what did happen with george and the van buren boys what did happen with kramer and all these stories and jay peterman's autobiography is he still going to be writing that later or is that just like a one note thing they're like well now i'm not writing my autobiography you know it's like is that ever going to come up again it just felt so uh, the episode felt so unresolved i didn't like the the third act i thought the middle was pretty good i got a lot of nice laughs about in the middle and i thought it was set up really well but you know i i like this episode but it it wasn't uh, wasn't one of my favorites what about you i'm in the exact same boat yeah, even for I would say even, I've been talking a lot about the baseline. I would put it even like right under the baseline. Yeah, for yeah. I I was thinking I was thinking that same thing. Like I don't want to star it, um, but it is higher in the episodes that I am not favoring over the others. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, 
This might be, I forget the the initial one that I, oh, maybe it was the, the chicken roasters that I was like, I put it in the yeah. same category as that. It's like nostalgic episodes that are very memorable because <laughs> they were kind of like really out there and introduced like this other party, be it this restaurant or this gang that's not in the normal Seinfeld universe. And it's like so, so out there and over the top. You're like, oh, I remember it. And so it's probably a good episode, but. It, it, you know, I don't think it held up as well. So I put this in the exact same category as the chicken roasters. <sighs> All right. Well, uh, next week we've got season eight, episode 15, the Susie original air date, February 13th, 1997. And if you're looking at TV guide that night, you are going to see Tim. You're going to love this one. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> While Elaine suffers in a case of mistaken identity and an ex friend fears Jerry's retribution, George avoids a girlfriend looking to break up. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> No way we can make that. Unless something, uh, from what I remember of the episode, at least, I don't remember the George storyline, but the first two are perfect. And so the the last part, I, I don't know if it, it might not, if it, as long as it happens in the episode, I love it. That's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes um, it doesn't happen. An absolute masterful use of weaving everything into a single sentence. Not one semicolon in this. <laughs> Yes, that's always the goal. That's the goal right there. It's, it's absolutely perfect, and I can't believe it came from Hulu. Oh, uh, yeah, I can't, the only thing we're going to have to do next week is fit Kramer into it. Oh, great. <laughs> it's near perfect. We'll see if we can do that. All right. Uh, is that it? Yeah, that's it. All right. For No Hugging, No Learning, I'm Tim Murphy. I'm Ted Hollowell. Be good. Be good.